Welcome to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Smith. In this week's episode, we discuss Aspie's recent report, Retweeting Through the Great Firewall, Uncovering Influence Operations Online. Yeah, so immediately we, we identified um, four key themes, uh, Hong Kong, Guangwei, uh, Taiwan, and also COVID-19. We also discussed the evolution of Australian intelligence agencies. It is certainly reshaping the way intelligence and security uh, matters are handled uh, at the highest level. But first, Aspie researcher Genevieve Feely speaks to gender equality and social inclusion expert Amy Haddad. Thanks so much for joining us today on the podcast, Amy. I'm really keen to talk about some UN things, some women, peace and security things ahead of the webinar we're both participating in next week on Tuesday, 7 July at 5pm, where we're going to talk about kind of WPS in 2020 and how do we progress implementation in a time of uncertainty. I'm really looking forward to it, but maybe now we'll move on to multilateralism to start off with. Um, so, as you know, it was recently the UN Charter Day on 26 June, uh, marking 75 years since the Charter was signed in San Francisco at the end of the UN conference in 1945. Obviously, since then, the UN's weathered innumerable crises and seen many historic moments. I'd be really curious to hear what some of maybe your favourite moments in UN history are. Thanks, Genevieve, and thanks so much for having me. Look, I think that's a great question. Um, and fortuitously, today is actually the 10th anniversary of the formation of UN Women, um, oh, awesome. which I think is a really interesting feat. It's pretty it's pretty nerdy, but I'm going to go there anyway <laughs> because there had been um, part of the development arm of the UN through UNIFEM that was focused on gender, but the creation of UN Women brought together both UN development functions and secretariat functions to specifically focus on gender equality. So it created an entity that had some level of mandate to look at accountability of the UN internally on gender equality issues, which I think is really interesting. And it's 10 years old today. So happy birthday, UN women. So I'm going to I'm gonna go for a plug as that as a, as a pretty important day in UN history. Yeah, please do. No, that's awesome. Yeah, I didn't know that. That's so fortuitous that that's the kind of the day that we've picked to do this podcast yeah. and the topic. Yeah, that's right. So looking at the kind of big anniversary this year of the 75th um, anniversary mm. of the United Nations, I'd be curious to hear about what you think the next 75 years might look like at the UN. And perhaps it's easy to break it down into like maybe the next five to 10 years um, mm. and maybe what you see as the biggest challenges to overcome during that time. Yeah, look, what a great question and I don't think any of us have got a crystal ball but you know let's have a let's have a stab see where we land um look I, I so I've been having a think about this and look I, I think um there are a couple of things that sort of spring to mind for me and I I recall when I was in New York and we were negotiating um the SDGs and there was also the Paris Agreement and um the Addis uh Development Financing Agreement and the the Sendai framework was just being completed as well and there was this kind of undercurrent of commentary in the UN that we might break it by trying to make it achieve too much. Um, it's like, wow, we can't achieve this. We, you know, the UN will just kind of evaporate because it'll turn out that we can't really cooperate the way that we thought we can. And, and you know, we got there and it was great. But I think I was one of the few that sort of stayed to see what the next two years would look like. And for me, what I saw is actually what's really challenging in the UN is figuring out how to do something. The what turns out we can eventually get there, but the how is really, really hard. And so I think that's actually a, ch- a real big challenge for the for the United Nations going forward, you know, now and into the next 75 years, because I feel like the how is getting more complicated. And we've seen that with COVID, like it's just such a complicated thing that we're dealing with. 
at the same time as we're dealing with you know a shift in how member states relate to each other as well and i think it's sort of useful to reflect that when the un charter was signed that was 51 countries and now 193 countries and so it's probably time over the next decades probably to to look at whether the un structures still deliver what we what we need them to do um and you know to understand that there's some real sort of geopolitical shifts in the way member states relate to each other and that impacts on whether those are fit for purpose um, functions in the UN. So we just saw last night the Security Council finally pass a COVID resolution and I think someone I saw someone tweet saying it took them 100 days to do that from when the Secretary-General first said, hey, a, a ceasefire would be good. It took the Security Council 100 days to get there, whereas the GA has been firing off resolutions and all sorts of things have been happening. And so you can kind of see in different parts of the system different bits are more functional at the moment than other parts and that's a combination of complexity and also how member states are relating to each other so when i step really far back from it part of the conversation is if we didn't have the un right now we would probably create something that looked a lot like it or like specific functions that it holds so i think the pretty low bar of the un over the next 75 years is actually to make it apparent that it's easier to keep working within the structures that exist than to start again from scratch. But the structures exist and they kind of they kind of roll along okay, but they need to be able to respond to the complexity of what we're dealing with in terms of global challenges at the same time as those geopolitical sort of power dynamics are continually shifting and maturing, you know, as as we kind of grow up in multilateralism. The UN was set up, it wasn't really sure then whether the UN Security Council or the UN General Assembly would actually be the most influential body. And we've obviously seen the Security Council come in. Yeah, for sure. I think I always think that it's kind of just impressive getting 193 countries to sit in a room together. Um, that's an achievement kind of in and of itself. Um, that is maybe the preeminent body of the institution, but now it's getting questions about its efficiency and efficacy. And I'd be curious to hear what ideas you have around reform. If possible, I'd love you to elaborate a little bit more on what you think maybe the reform should happen at the UN. That's a really astute observation. And I witnessed even in the time that I was there that the GA was emerging as the premier fora within within the UN. And and largely, to, to, to be pretty blunt about it, because it's one of the only functions that includes all 193 member states. And so there's a bit of suspicion, and, and I think that suspicion is deepening around things like ECOSOC, which is not the full membership, around the Human Rights Council, which is not the full membership. And so what we're, continu- what we're sort of continually seeing is that things are being re-prosecuted in the GA that have had already theoretically been dealt with in, in um, functional bodies being brought back into the GA because there's more comfort that that's actually representative. And I think that's a real um, indicator of how 193 countries can come together is that 193 countries need to be part of it. But the other really significant thing is is the only places of veto is in the Security Council. And you can kind of track back to 1945 and understand why why that was baked into that structure. But you move forward to now and it's like, three of the veto holders are some of the least cooperative UN members we've ever had right now. Um, and so there's, I think there's definitely a case to be made that that structure needs to look different um, if it's to continue to have respect and legitimacy. Because taking 100 days to just, just agree a ceasefire is, um, or recommend a ceasefire is... Um, is not filling anyone with confidence. And so I think there's a risk that that function gets sidelined, um, mm. which is going to be complicated because, I mean, one of the challenges over the next 75 years is we'll see 
security, humanitarian response and development come together in a more nuanced way. And either the Security Council needs to be flexible enough and inclusive enough to accommodate that or the GA is going to start occupying more of that space. Yeah, that's a really good point because I think it does come down to the kind of credibility of the body and whether people do respect the kind of authority it has. Um, and even just thinking about how climate change isn't particularly on the Security Council's agenda and that's something that maybe new non-permanent states are going to have to push to get on the agenda um, is going to be really interesting to see over the next kind of few years and how they deal with these not even emerging security challenges but just ones that are going to be big in the future. Mm. And Maybe kind of turning now to um, gender equality at the UN, because I think that's a really interesting issue there. As you said, you spent a number of years based there negotiating documents in the Commission on the Status of Women and other committees that pass resolutions on gender equality. What kind of changes have you noticed since your time there? Have things progressed? Have things gone backwards? I'd be really curious to hear. Yeah, look, I'm not Robinson Crusoe in saying they've definitely gone backwards. Um, and in ways that were kind of a bit predictable, like I, I think I could have anticipated that from where I was sitting, you know, I've, I've wrapped up at the beginning of 2017. Um, and we could already see really significant conservative pressure on women's human rights and um, it taking longer to agree things uh CSW has been pretty consistent at reaching agreement, but things like the Commission on Population and Development are consistently not reaching agreement because they cover some of those more controversial issues around sexuality. So we saw a real high point when we were able to agree the package of gender targets and goals through the SDGs, and we just really haven't got back there again. And I think last year was people are still reeling from what happened in 2019 when we saw uh, the, the the facilitator of the CSW outcome document be harassed, um, receive hate mail, she had to get police protection, she had to change her phone number. Um, and that was lobbying from conservative states and, and activists against content around women's human rights and specifically women's reproductive rights. And so that's definitely gone backwards. And I think a really interesting sort of thought experiment, you're going to open a bottle of wine and ponder this for a few hours, is what would have happened in 2020 if we didn't have COVID, um, which meant that we're not in negotiating rooms, that the level of ambition has flattened. Um, it's a bit of a tick and flick sort of exercise. But I wonder whether we were probably going to see something like that anyway because there's just so much nervousness about open up, opening up um normative documents and the, and the potential and the risk of going backwards. Um, and that, I think that risk is really, really real. But sort of the, the counterweight to that, which I've seen really, which I've, I've been really fascinated to, to witness, is that as this pressure in the negotiation space and in, and in, and in the consensus space has got harder, countries are using their own platforms, so through statements and speeches and things, to be way more forward-leaning than I've heard them before. So it was very rare that any member state would actually say the abortion word in a in a statement. And now we're seeing it we're seeing it pretty regularly and we're seeing it through um, multi-member state statements. So there's this sort of um, I don't want to say performative, but there's, there's almost this kind of performative progression in the space that doesn't have to be negotiated. So through statements and speeches and things to try and kind of put a pin in the fact that, that this is still an issue of contention and that there are still member states willing to um, defend it. And importantly, that there's still work to do. So while what is ultimately agreed is is pretty flat and in some instances goes backwards, member states, I think, are actually really running the issue up the flag in a different more um, kind of dynamic sort of way than, than I've seen previously. 
No, that's a really, really interesting point. Um, and also something to pick up on there. I, my next kind of question was maybe on whether you saw COVID as posing particular challenges for the women, peace and security agenda, but maybe it may even act as a kind of circuit breaker and a bit of a pause to stop and reflect on what happened last year um, and maybe regroup ahead of future negotiations. But I'd be very curious to hear your thoughts on that maybe as a final question. I mean, that's a great question and, and I think we need to see. But what I what I can see sort of on the practical level with COVID is um, – diminished resources almost always marginalizes input and focus on gender equality and we, we we were already seeing that in the WPS uh space where there was kind of a trade-off it's like well you're approaching parity you're in your in your forces so therefore you don't need gender expertise as if they are the same thing um and so COVID is obviously going to constrict um, resources through the multilateral system and through peacekeeping operations in all sorts of ways and I think gender will will pay the price there um but I think we also see that we haven't embedded the practice around gender and inclusion so that it's actually kind of a core part of the spirit of how we do things. So that when we're working rapidly and we're trying to achieve things quickly, those things just get left off the table. It's like, oh, no, no, we don't have time for that. We don't have money for that. And so I think there's a high level of risk that women are being excluded from leadership and implementation of a range of COVID responses um, and that it'll be harder just to claw back in. So, yeah, there might be a circuit breaker on the normative human rights side, but on the financing and implementation side, I think COVID presents a really significant challenge because we just haven't habituated this properly within the within the system. And so the cash and the attention just evaporates as soon as there's pressure. No, I think that's a really good point to end on, that the kind of financing of all of this really is an overlooked part. And I think it's only really now that people are clocking into how important that side of things are to get this done. Um, again, thanks so much for joining us today. I'm really looking forward to chatting again next week after this at the webinar. Um, and thanks everyone for tuning into the segment. Thanks for your time. Both Amy Haddad and Genevieve Feely will be joining us for our Women, Peace and Security in 2020 webinar on Tuesday 7th of July. You'll find a link to register for the event in the description below. Next, ASPE's Jake Wallace and Samantha Hoffman discuss their recent report, Retweeting Through the Great Firewall, on their analysis of Twitter accounts to uncover influence operations online. Hey Sam, thanks for making some time to talk this morning. Uh, we were recently involved in the investigation of a, an influence operation linked to the People's Republic of China. And the, the background here is that Twitter's site integrity team gave us advanced access to a TakePoint data set that they had identified as being linked to the PRC. Uh, this was a data set that was huge and created a whole range of interesting challenges for us in terms of how we work with data of this nature. So I thought maybe we could start the conversation just by talking about how we engage with data of that quantity, data of, of that volume, and then we can sort of filter down and uh, funnel into the data itself and talk about some of the interesting features that we saw. So I think one of the one of the early challenges, and this this kind of work is very time sensitive, so we have to get on this really quickly. One of the early challenges was just breaking down data volume so that our analysts like yourself can, can find meaningful ways of engaging with the data and drawing out interesting features. And to do that, we had to we had to draw on cloud, cloud infrastructure to create a lightweight. Um, a pipeline that would allow us to apply machine learning uh, to categorize the data, to extract text from 
something like 36,000 images because a lot of this campaign was was image based. We um, we used artificial intelligence to categorize topics. We um, ran through auto translate. We extracted meaningful entities from the data so that we could develop metrics of sentiment positive or negative sentiment around the language that was used. So all of that was really interesting work in, in itself, fundamentally the first step in, in breaking into the data set. Um, we also noted that this was an influence operation that had been running for some time on the platform back, back since um, April 2017, because we'd done some work on a previous iteration of this this operation. So we know that this kind of activity targets regime critics, that it has pivoted focus on the Hong Kong protests. And there are another, another, a number of interesting features that emerge from the data set in terms of how it's evolved from our initial investigation back in September 20, 2019. And I thought one of the really interesting features that we identified was the way in which it had been agile and pivoting to, to adapt to contemporary events, for example, the Hong Kong protests, for example, extrapolating from the Twitter data to see it move uh, into exploiting the um, domestic protest in the US as a way of creating a perception of moral equivalence with the suppression of protest in Hong Kong. But in terms of the kind of narrative structure and linguistic traits that we were able to identify once we did crack into the data set. What kinds of things were you seeing with your your team of, of linguistic um, analysts? We, we noticed that the the posts their intended audiences were were quite varied. Um, some texts were composed in simplified Chinese characters, and others were composed in traditional Chinese characters. Um, some were mixed with uh, special Cantonese characters. Um, some appeared to have been first composed in simplified Chinese and then and then converted into traditional. Um, some included English language. Uh, there were some uh, spelling errors and, and uh, mistakes in some of them. Uh, so they weren't uh, perfect and, and there were, but then others, others looked a little bit more sophisticated. But the English language messaging was always generally consistent with the Chinese language messaging from, from the posts that we looked through. Sometimes uh, the imagery, though, in in the context of, of the audience, if, if it was uh, if it was for a Hong Kong audience, the imagery would have would have resonated more than it would with, say, an audience in the United States. So we noticed that, especially the the, the messages on the Hong Kong protests were likely targeting uh, Hong Kong audience and diaspora. Okay, that's really interesting. So you were able to identify traits within the linguistic linguistic data that, that helped us get a sense of where this campaign was being targeted. That's, that's fascinating. And it just shows that you need both the computational methods and the, the qualitative analysis that um, analysts with linguistic skills and an understanding of um, how the um, how Republic of China uses propaganda um, in combination. That's what I think that's the strength that we we brought this this kind of body of work. And what about the what about the narratives themselves? What kind of um, themes emerged from from the analysis that your team undertook? Yeah. So immediately we we identified um, four key themes: uh, Hong Kong, uh, Guangwei, Taiwan, and also COVID nineteen. 
there were more posts about Hong Kong than anything else uh, followed uh, by Guo and then fewer on Taiwan and, and COVID-19. And in general, Taiwan and COVID-19 uh, were overlapping with the other narratives as well. What was interesting in the Hong Kong uh, narratives, so we focused on, or we noticed there was a huge, huge focus on uh, the accusation that protesters are violent. And um, there were also many posts calling for support of Hong Kong police, but then they were they were coupled with imagery that attempted to, to dehumanize protesters. Uh, so for instance, uh, images of police killing cockroaches with the other the other thing that you saw a lot in the Hong Kong uh, content were allegations of US interference. And those were also appearing in English. Uh, so for instance, the um, Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act, once uh, that was passed, there were there were images of the U.S. Capitol building, for instance, with uh, several uh, shadowy black hands reaching down on a Hong Kong that's on fire, uh, and another image, for instance, of a of a hand reaching down with a tattoo of the U.S. flag on it that says "Naked Act of Hegemony" on it, and so uh, those those are quite striking, um, especially those images being in English as well. And Gua Wang Wei, there was a huge focus and actually an overwhelming focus on his relationship with Steve Bannon. Um, uh, Gua Wang Wei, for, for those who need the context, is uh, an exiled billionaire in the U.S. and nobody quite knows uh, what's motivating him. And it could be multiple, multiple different stories. And, and I think the implications of these tweets depend on who, who he actually is. And, and I don't think anybody has a good answer to that yet. And there were also accusations that he's a liar. And accusations that he's immoral and picking up on uh, charges, for instance, that he's a rapist. And um, the imagery of, of Wall tended to be uh, also showing um, uh, him throwing money at, at Steve Bannon and Steve Bannon readily accepting his money and then repeating his lines for him. So that content was, was quite interesting. And it's interesting that uh, that amount of resources goes to one particular person. Um, Obviously, there's a level of importance there um, in terms of what he's doing um, to the propaganda apparatus. So Taiwan, uh, there was a lot of content, for instance, on the election and on COVID-19. There were a lot of overlap uh, narratives as well as a lot of um, uh, claims that China's pandemic management was um, uh, particularly good compared to the U.S. and and, and, uh, other countries, but especially the U.S. So this is obviously part of a, an ongoing propaganda campaign that is driven by the heightened strategic competition that's emerged from the, the, the health and economic crisis um, caused by COVID-19. I think one of the really interesting features, Sam, is that um, despite what's obviously years of significant investment, this has been running way back since April 2017, um, huge numbers of fake accounts. So we're looking at, in this data set, it was almost 24,000 fake accounts. There was another 150,000 repurposed accounts. So this is an operation that is taking place at significant scale. Yet one of the one of the features that we found was that it seemed to be really low return. The, the, the echo chamber, um, these, uh, these fake accounts were creating was not driving significant um, external engagements, significant organic engagement from from genuine, authentic audiences on Twitter. So I, we, that's really interesting. It seems to suggest that this is an operation that will be undeterred, despite the previous outing 
um, through a, 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 a significantly well-publicized takedown from Twitter back in August 2019. And here again, this, this takedown got international coverage. So yeah, this activity seems undeterred, and we, we think that's a really interesting assessment, an interesting judgment that we can we can draw from specific operation. But what's interesting here is that this is just one operation, isn't it? This is just one strand of activity. And these activities are not limited to, to influence operations that are driven across social media. It's a, it's a broader campaign than that. It's a broader strategy than that. I think uh, the data set itself, it really focused on um, perceived perceived threats um, that the party would, would label as um, internal affairs maybe that are acting out on a, on a global, on a global stage. Um, but e- these Twitter accounts, as you say, they aren't the only ones that are, that are uh, engaged in this propaganda work. I mean, you've got the foreign ministry, um, you've got uh, state media who are engaged in um, uh, repeating conspiracy theories, for, for instance, about the virus origin. And um, so those aren't included in this data set, um, but they're still uh, impactful. And then you also have, uh, for the long term, and this is nothing new, the way that the Chinese party state attempts to shape narratives about China, the Chinese people, whether it's uh, you know Chinese culture or how uh, somebody should engage with China in order to maintain access, and and all those things shape the way that we talk about issues related to the PRC um, over a very long period of time, and I think that's important to remember as well. Um, also, the way that Chinese propaganda shapes Chinese nationals' perceptions of, of these events as well, I think is also an important point um, about patriotic education uh, post-Tiananmen and the impact that has. It's, uh, it's organic, but it's still influenced by uh, the, regime's, the regime's versions of what, what the truth are. The, the voices, for instance, that, that they promote versus the ones that they put down all of those things are combined in really a complex system. So those Twitter accounts that were taken down are only one really small part of a much larger apparatus over quite a long time period. There's so much to talk about here, Sam, but I think we're running out of time and I think we're going to have to draw it to a close. But what I would do is urge anyone listening who's interested in the methodology or the data itself, or the findings that we're drawing out from this kind of data, Please go to the ASPE website and uh, take a look at our, our report retweeting through the Great Firewall. Finally, Graham Dobell and Peter Edwards discuss the evolution of Australian intelligence agencies and why, following the establishment of the Department of Home Affairs, there should be an inquiry into intelligence agencies, similar to those conducted by Justice Robert Hope in the 70s and 80s. Peter Edwards, thanks for joining ASPE. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Peter, why does Australia need another Royal Commission into Intelligence modelled on the inquiries that Justice Robert Hope did for three Australian Prime Ministers? Well, about 10 or 15 years ago, after the flood report, the uh, government adopted a system recommended by Philip Flood uh, that there should be an inquiry into the intelligence agencies roughly every five or six years. And that was followed in uh, about 2013, then uh, 2017. Um, There was a report, the Independent Intelligence Review, uh, done by uh, Michael Lestrange and Stephen Merchant. 
and that re made certain recommendations, which basically uh, were further developments of the HOPE model from the 1970s and 1980s, the major one being the upgrading of ONA into the Office of National Intelligence, so that the uh, all intelligence would be coordinated through that central agency uh, under within the portfolio of Prime Minister and Cabinet. But at the same time, uh, the government announced uh, a major change, of which I think Lestrange and Merchant weren't aware, the creation of the Department of Home Affairs, which consolidated a number of uh, intelligence and security agencies into this new department, including both ASIO and the federal police. And what that meant was that of the new national intelligence community, five of the 10 agencies all came under home affairs. So there was the prospect that, that, uh, that a lot of the coordination of intelligence and the shaping of intelligence might be framed within one new super department instead of by the Office of, uh, of National Intelligence. And there seems to be a sort of two rival models operating, if you like, at the same time. And one of the things that uh, Lestrange and Merchant warned against was uh, the danger of having intelligence assessments unduly uh, influenced by what they called, in a marvelous piece of alliteration, the preordained policy priorities and preferences of one area of government. And from what one hears, that is that there's a certain amount of that happening. Uh, that the coordination uh, is being done a lot in home affairs before it gets to the uh, Office of National Intelligence. So, so, how, so, what do, so how do you see this new super department bending down after about two years? From all that one sees and hears, uh, it does seem to be having a considerable influence. Um, it's a, uh, under a very powerful minister and a very powerful departmental Secretary, uh, I think that combination is one of the most powerful ones in Canberra since John McEwen and John Crawford were running trade policy in the 50s and 60s. So it is certainly reshaping the way intelligence and security uh, matters are handled uh, at the highest level. Well, Malcolm Turnbull says that what he did in 2017, creating home affairs, the intelligence reforms that he also brought in, were the biggest changes since the 1970s. If that is accepted, that, that these are the biggest changes, do we need, immediately need to go to a full Royal Commission to look at this new structure? Well, we would be due for another in independent intelligence review in about uh, 22, 2022. And I think it might be worth upgrading that one to a full uh, Royal Commission to have a long look at how these two models have been operating, how uh, to what extent home affairs has significantly, or the creation of home affairs and the consolidation of uh, so many agencies within that, how that has in fact operated. Because it's not just the items within home affairs, it took ASIO and the AFP out of the Attorney General's portfolio and put them into Home Affairs, it also, in effect, has downgraded the Inspector General of Intelligence and Security by putting that back into or uh, taking it out of PM and C 
and putting it into it into the attorney general's uh, department. Now, a fundamental element of the hope model was that coordination and oversight should come from the the very top, uh, and to to sort of consolidate so many of the agencies, and at the same time to to put the inspector general. Uh, in the Attorney General's department rather than PM&C does, I think, send some wrong signals or some misleading signals. I think what we need is an independent assessment of how that has actually been working. Uh, It may be, um, you know, by 2022, we'll have had five years of these systems being operating. And I think it would be very good to have an independent assessment, uh, because there are a number of warning signs over the last few years. The uh, the raids by the AFP on news organisations, the secret uh, trial of witness uh, J, the semi-secret trial of witness K and his lawyer, uh, a number of other signs which indicate a a distinct toughening, if you like, uh, of approaches to intelligence and security matters and that fundamental question of uh, that hope addressed um, so importantly the fundamental question of the balance between effectiveness and accountability between protecting security and protecting civil liberties and i think the it we need in the next couple of years i'm not saying it has to be tomorrow or anything that we need a fresh Uh, external assessment of uh, whether the new system has that balance right. What would Robert Hope think of this structure today, the structure that he did so much to put in place? I think he would be uh, quite concerned about the uh, this consolidation of so many agencies uh, within the one department I think he would also uh, raise an eyebrow or two at the thought that um, uh, this was being modelled on the British Home Office. Uh, One of the strengths of his inquiry uh, was that he looked very hard at overseas models, most importantly the British and the American, but others as well, and and was very uh, careful in deciding which aspects he thought were good and should be emulated and which ones he uh, specifically rejected. Uh, so he created a very distinctly Australian model uh, that wasn't model uh, wasn't based on what was happening in Washington or London. Uh, one of the crucial ones being, of course, that the, we had a, a in lowercase central intelligence agency, uh, the Office of National Assessments, and now Office of National Intelligence. But one that's very different from the uh, CIA in Washington. Uh, it uh, our one does assessments only uh, and coordination uh, of the whole system, uh, whereas the CIA, as we all know, is into collecting intelligence. It's into special operations and all sorts of things for which it's been either famous or notorious over the years. How well do you think Canberra is? operating the hope separation model, separating assessment from collection and policy, this eternal tension between contestability and 
coordination, the danger of tribalism versus the danger of groupthink. Uh, yeah, I, I think, uh, well, again, I'm not privy to what happens uh, inside the, the corridors of power, so uh, uh, one can only judge by what, uh, what emerges. Uh, but Hope uh, was, I think, uh, struck by and, uh, in fact, to some extent underestimated by uh, the extent to which tribalism, departmental loyalties and so forth did affect uh, the way people operated. Now, he was very much targeting uh, the excessive influence of departments over the intelligence agencies. Uh, in his day, he was uh, targeting firstly defence and to a lesser extent uh, foreign affairs, then known as external affairs. Uh, but the, um, uh, I think he would raise an eyebrow or two uh, at the consolidation of so many agencies into one super department, uh, home affairs, uh, as being antithetical to the idea of a number of different agencies, each with their own expertise, uh, their own techniques, uh, and, and separating uh, assessment from, uh, from collection. Uh, ASIO was always uh, allowed to be the exception uh, in, in that it did both collection and uh, assessment. Um, but I, I think this would be reinforcing the undesirable element of, um, uh, of, uh, of putting uh, assessment too close to collection. In conclusion, do you think that Hope would still see that there is a distinctive Australian way of doing intelligence? There really is an Australian intelligence community. I think there there is. Um, I think it's being significantly reshaped. And I think what we need now is a careful uh, long-term assessment, not just looking at specific uh, events and crises or uh, but overall, um, to, to look at how uh, assessment and collection, uh, or how the Australian model, which he set up, uh, to what extent that has been reshaped and whether that's been reshaped for better or for worse uh, by the changes that, were, that have been made in recent years. Uh, and particularly the, the two that were simultaneously announced on the 18th of July 2017, uh, the, the creation of Home Affairs and the, uh, the creation of the Office of National Intelligence. Uh, to what extent the, uh, those two major changes and uh, other ones associated with them uh, have operated for better or for worse in the, in the Australian uh, intelligence scene. And your provisional answer to that? Uh, I think it's a very open question, but uh, there are some uh, alarming public indications that, the, that that balance is not working so well, that the balance between effectiveness and civil liberties, effectiveness and accountability, uh, is, not, is a bit out of whack, uh, and that we need to be reassured that the uh, that the balance is being operated carefully, and that the all the uh, proper oversight mechanisms are being adequately resourced and given adequate powers to to ensure that that balance between protecting security and protecting civil liberties uh, is maintained in the way that it should be. Peter Edwards, thanks for joining Aspie. 
pleasure. Thank you. That's all we have time for this week on Policy Guns and Money. Thank you for joining us. You can always tweet us at aspie underscore org. We will be back with another episode next week. Thank you for listening.